What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Goggin Biani. Goggin is the co-founder and CEO of Maven, an online platform where top creators teach cohort-based courses. Prior to Maven, Goggin founded Sprig, a food delivery startup, and also co-founded Udemy, the world's largest marketplace for teaching and learning with over 155,000 courses and 40 million students worldwide. We spoke with Goggin all about his upbringing, his early career in founding Udemy, why he ended up getting fired from the company, his thoughts on the higher education system in America, why he started Maven and what he hopes to accomplish, and much more. Here we go. Goggin, it's a it's a pleasure to to have you on the show. Uh, you know, we're really excited to to talk to you. I mean, you know, definitely uh, familiar with some of the companies that you've started, but also really excited about the space that you're in, which is education and really, you know, revolutionizing what that is and, and how we think about it. And so i um, excited to dive in. But I guess uh, before we get into all the business stuff and all the career stuff, you know, we'd love to kind of start with talking about your personal background and upbringing. Um, and, and I think I saw, so I saw this on your website and I'll just like start by reading it and we can dive right into it. And it says, I was born in Fremont, California to Indian immigrants due to a complex childhood in an Asian American tiger mom community. I developed a character that is honest, action oriented and ambitious. So tell us a little bit about that and what you were like as a kid, what you were into and we can go from there. Sure. I uh, grew up like it says in the bio, I grew up in Fremont, which is like this community in the Bay area in California where, uh, Almost all of the parents and and people I grew up with were kids of parents who were who had moved to the United States. Parents were first generation, kids were second generation. Software engineers they had, they had they had arrived in the United States solely for the purpose of finding a better life for their family. And a lot of people there were had struggled a lot growing up and. Had, fig- had become the best students in their class in India or China or whatever country they came from. And they really wanted the best for their children. So that's what my mom and dad were like. And that's what a lot of my friends' parents were like. What did that, or how did that impact you growing up? Well, school was extremely important. I think that my mother taught me multiplication tables before I started kindergarten. I was doing cursive before I got into kindergarten. And this isn't because of my own you know, capabilities. I'm sure there was some of that, but more because my parents were just furiously trying to get me to be academically successful. And all my friends were like this too. So it was totally normal to you know, work hard in school and get good grades. Like That was cool amongst my friend circle. And I did lots of extracurriculars. My parents encouraged me to play chess. I became a very competitive chess player in elementary school. My parents encouraged me to do speech and debate in high school. I played soccer and basketball and you know baseball and just every activity imaginable. Anything we could possibly do that was going to increase my likelihood of getting into a good university, we were doing. And so I grew up nerdy and academic and tried to do well in school. And I think that that set a very strong foundation for the future of my life. I was, you know, taught to work hard early on and we still had some fun, but I think working hard was a big value uh, that I was taught early in my life. You know, a lot of kids would perhaps rebel against their parents, you know, 
especially under that sort of pressure to do well academically. Some kids might not even have what it takes to do well academically, even after a lot of hard work and a lot of studying. Um, but, you know, why were you okay with it? Well, first, I'd say on balance, this is the type of pressure that existed throughout my entire community. And not everyone responded well to it, but everyone in the long term benefited from it. So I would say that most of the people that I know, not everybody, but anyone I can remember from high school in my community ended up having a fairly uh, successful life. And I think they're doing pretty well overall. Of course, I don't know their details. And so I think that, yeah, there are kids for which this pressure was overbearing and they didn't quite perform all the time to the expectations. But I just want to be clear that I think having that pressure was still better than not having it for most kids, even the ones right. that didn't respond well. Why I responded well, I, I think you just have to view this a bit like luck of the draw. You know, I just happened to grow up and be fairly good at skill at school. Like I was, you know, precocious. I was able to quickly learn things and pick them up and I had a fire under me to do well in school that my parents had that took, right? You you ask, okay, everyone has got these parents. I guess with me it worked. And so I was very motivated. I will say that this is pre-high school. So this totally changed right. in high school and I became quite rebellious. Uh but until high school I was very studious. I knew there had to be a moment that, you know, you shook things up a bit. Yeah, I don't think you become an entrepreneur if you don't shake things up early in your life, you know? So for me, it was high school. My parents had divorced and my entire school actually kind of rebelled. I think we got to the point where we realized that the adults in the room who were teaching us stuff didn't know more than we did. And I also think that the quality of our high school was significantly worse than the quality of our junior high or elementary school. And so the teachers were just not as rigorous or capable, and they would often do things that felt disingenuous to us and felt like they were just trying to make school harder for the sake of making it harder instead of making it actually academically useful to us. And so we were And was that stuff? And was that stuff that you were like that aware of while you were there? Or is this more so like in hindsight, you realize that was the case because, um, you know, at the time, like, I don't know, did you know of the, of a better alternative? Like, did you talk to any friends that went to different schools that you thought, oh, you saw like, oh, their teachers are doing a, such, such a better job than my teachers, for example? Well, most of my friends in school had had better teachers in our junior high and elementary school, but I would say we had some good teachers and some bad ones, right? So we rebelled more against the bad ones, but even rebelled against all of them. We were extremely aware of not the alternative options. We didn't know that it could be better from a like, oh, we see a friend at X school and we know that X school is better than our school. That wasn't the case. But what was the case was we absolutely felt like, wow, this is bullshit. Like, why are we having to memorize uh Spanish sayings in Spanish class as part of Spanish four, instead of learning about vocabulary that we would actually use. Why in Spanish two, did we have a teacher who literally spoke zero English the entire year in junior high? And then we came to Spanish three and four, and all of a sudden our entire class is in English, even though we're better at Spanish ostensibly. Why did our English teachers ask us questions like, 
what you know what was the name of Tom Sawyer's you know great aunt when this was only mentioned I'm making that up obviously I don't remember the specific question <laughs> but what, when that was only mentioned like once or twice in the book and was a relatively erroneous plot point so it was fairly obvious to us and we had active discussions about how we were not happy with our schooling and it resulted in a rebelliousness that I think was was too much. Like we were unfair to our teachers and we were mean and we were rude to, to them, I think, in a way that was inappropriate. At the same time, our teachers were just not very good. And it's really disappointing to think about that. But we went to a top 100 high school in the country. So what's it like for the kid who goes to a high school that's, you know, number 1,000 or number 5,000? Well, at least you know what Zanahoria means in Spanish, hopefully. Uh, I do, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Pat, Pat, you're looking like I think you I know, know what it means. means. I want to say it's <laughs> I, dro- I dropped I dropped out of Spanish one too. Um, I want to say it's zucchini, well, but I know it's a vegetable, zanahoria. Carrots, carrots but damn hey, it. I was I was gonna hey. guess carrots next, but yeah. I might have to teach I might have to teach Spanish on Maven. Yeah, is, you should. Is what I'm you should. I I I'd, kidding, I'd love kidding. a refresher in Spanish. <laughs> I mean yeah, I, I can speak with my you know, I can speak it and I, I spent six months living in Latin America in the last two, three years. So there was a time at which I would know what Zanahoria was for sure. But um, yeah, I missed that one. (laughs) So Goggin, you ended up, you know, you clearly have did decently well to end up at Berkeley. Uh, You know, why'd you choose that? Was it just because it was close to home or, you know, their economics program was the one you wanted to be? A part of it. I mean, no, what, not, what, was it, what was that all about? It's so funny you use those two examples because those are two examples in which it is resoundingly no. I, I did not want to live close to home. I was so tired of living in the <laughs> Bay Area and wanted to move desperately. But Berkeley was the only school I got into at the caliber that it was the best school I got into. Uh, and the other school was UCLA, which I really wanted to go to. But my, my mom sort of put her foot down and didn't let me. You good job for mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's not a good school. <laughs> We're SC <essay> guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, not what? even a good, not even a good school. I don't know what UCLA even is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest; these are all great schools. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, my mom. Not UCLA, but yeah, it's okay. <laughs> my mom, my mom, very much believed in the ranking system and was like, "Yo, yeah. you, you got to go to the best school you got into." And then the second thing you said, economics, actually, I went to Berkeley in part thinking that I could become a business major, but I got rejected from the business school. So I ended up an economics major. I was one of those, mm. one of those people at our, at our school. I think you dodged a bullet there too. I think, I think, uh, I went to the business school at USC and I kind of wish I did economics cause I feel like I would have come away with at least a little bit more practical knowledge and something that I can say like I, I know enough about this particular subject as opposed to like a general business degree yeah i agree because i took two-thirds of the business school requirement so i could have majored in business school if i had like two more classes or something like that yeah um but they didn't let me in so i wouldn't have gotten the degree because there's an application process um but the point is that those school those classes were terrible so i yeah. i completely agree i didn't learn it i learned i think in accounting i learned a few things that i ended up using but otherwise yeah. It was kind of extremely disappointing. Again, just like amazed at the quality of education that you get given uh, how much money and how much prestige it goes into this. I will say that I thought the economics program at Berkeley was really strong and I learned a lot. So 
Uh, I wish I had taken school a little more seriously at Berkeley because I think I would have enjoyed it more. But the business classes I took were were mostly awful. There were a couple good ones, but mostly. Yeah, because I feel like you're like barely scratching the surface in all these different areas that kind of, they don't even necessarily fit with each other, right? Like there's like marketing and then there's like finance in this corner and then there's accounting and then there's like, they all fall under, I guess, this business umbrella, but they're all so different. (laughs) So it's like, how could you possibly, you know, I don't know. It's and, and and how could you possibly know enough about one or the other to really to have like some sort of proficiency in any of them? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. I think the connection between classes is low, but I'd I'd say the bigger issue is that individually on a class by class basis, they are not teaching the skills that would prepare you for being successful in the world that it, you would enter. So, in the business program, as an example, I remember in finance class doing tons of very esoteric math around like the black shoals method and discounted cash flows and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I came out of it not knowing how to build a financial model. (laughs) And you just have to ask yourself like, dude, what kind of a professor, like, like what happened in your career, in your life that you would teach a bunch of kids how to do the black shoals method, which is basically irrelevant you know, I, it shows up on my 49A every quarter, but it's basically irrelevant. And you wouldn't teach them how to build a really good financial model for a business. Right. I, I don't, I wonder like what, why the disconnect is like, is like, where, where does that come from? I mean, do, do these teachers just not, I don't know, the, does the department not want to be like innovative or like be on top of current, you know, most, the most recent ways of doing things like from the professional level, like I guess now it's gotten a little bit, little bit better, but I, I think like 10, 15, even 20 years ago, like there, there, there was a massive disconnect with the professional world and I feel like what they were doing and then also what they were teaching in the classes, right? I've got four words here. Monopoly-driven regulatory capture. Mm-hmm. You have a regulatory body that has installed a monopolistic system. And anyone would listen to that would say, wait a second, there are like a thousand universities in the United States. I don't know the number. It's probably more than that. But there, there are thousands of universities in the United States. How could it possibly be a monopoly? But there's only one regulatory body that decides whether or not you are allowed to be a degree-granting institution. And that regulatory body has a very particular set of things. And those institutions influence that regulatory body. And so what's happened essentially is these schools do not have an incentive to get better because they are not competing in a fair and open market. Instead, they're competing in a market for which they set the rules. And the particular rules that they set that cause this problem, and one of the most basic ones is you must have a PhD to be a professor at most universities. And what is a PhD? Well, for a P- to be a PhD student, you will spend seven years, give or take, studying one very, very specific subject and publishing research on that subject. Your goal is to be the cutting edge on something extremely esoteric that is not relevant to most people in the world. And every once in a while, you get published. And every once in a while, that published article becomes really meaningful in the world. I mean, there's great research that comes out of universities. But 
99% of those papers just gather digital dust or physical dust in their universities. And so if you ask someone to spend seven years doing research in order to become a professor of of a subject, what's going to happen? You've spent seven years and you haven't optimized it all for them knowing what the job is that these people who are students are going to go into, not knowing the subject area at large. You just know a very particular area. You are writing long papers in an, in an even more sort of calcified system than the university system itself, the system of how academic papers get, get evaluated. And so, of course, the outcome of the system is a professor group that is very good at research and actually comes up with some amazing innovations, but is not very good at academic teaching. And doesn't, you know, they don't, you know, some PhDs, uh, a lot of PhDs do some teaching and so they get some practice in it, but it is a very small part of their overall uh, experience as, as PhD students. And it is I'm not sure this, what you are graded on and why you are given good marks as a PhD student. So we don't optimize for that. I'm sure we'll touch upon this like in throughout this episode. But, you know, it's just interesting to me and interesting and also kind of upsetting slash sad slash any other synonym there that everybody that goes through the college system or a graduate program, not everyone, I would say a majority of people that you talk to are disappointed with the outcome, right? Whatever their expectation of that was, right? Some people maybe expected to have a great time in college and didn't. Others maybe expected to learn something and they didn't. Others expected to get a job and they didn't, right? Whatever the reason may be. Yet there's been little to no true innovation besides obviously you know, what you're doing now and what you've done in the past and what other entrepreneurs are doing from the institution itself, right? With these institutions have so much influence, so much money, so much power, they could bring on almost like chief innovation officers or entrepreneurs and residents to help them figure out how to innovate internally and keep those institutions alive and actually meaningful in the world. And yet they haven't done that, right? Why do you, why do you think that is? First of all, they do all those things. So, and there are great schools out there that do good work in innovation. ASU, Georgetown, they've both built innovation groups and are constantly trying to push the limits. However, like I said, the schools are subject to a system that is that encompasses all universities in the United States, and that system does not allow for this type of innovation. So they have very strict requirements and legal uh, legal definitions of what a university means, what a bachelor's degree means, what a master's degree means, what a graduate program means. And those rules are so strict that the universities have a virtual monopoly on the right to educate our future children. So our, you know, our, our sort of young adults, if you will, or, or adults, um, people entering adulthood in the 18 to 21 range, right? They have a virtual monopoly. So they as a collective, they do not have an incentive to change. And then there's a bunch of details about how this happened. Well, eventually professors created unions that union-ish things that created tenure. And so now all of a sudden you can't fire professors. And devil. professors want to believe that they're, you know, they want to spend time, you know, studying 
esoteric academic stuff that's like what they're excited about. And so they've created this system in which if you want to be at a top tier university, you have to be really, really good at some research. And research brings in grant funding, which is actually the one area of these universities that is not uh, monopolistic, right? Universities don't have a, a actual regulatory monopoly over grant funding. Anyone can get grant funding. And so universities get all their extra money from grants. They don't get their extra money from tuition. Tuition is guaranteed because they have they have a monopoly over that. They can't, they sue, you know, they're suing all these boot camps. Like, I, I mean, I can't go into details because these are my friends, but all of the boot camps are getting sued because people are saying, well, these aren't real universities. Well, God damn it. These universities are doing much better than your universities are, and they're doing it at one-fifth the cost, and they're doing it in one-fourth the time. Like, what the hell? But they're getting but are they even claiming? Are they claiming to be universities, though? They should be. They are more valuable than most universities to a student. They should be allowed to claim themselves as universities, but they are not allowed to. And... So what and 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 so not only are they not allowed to, but if they do a bunch of things that look like what universities do, then the universities will come after them, even if they don't use right. those terms. So if they use terms right. that are kind of similar, like graduation or applications and those types of terms, of course, no individual term is going to cause their they're getting sued, but the collection of them are part of the reason right. why they're getting sued. And and what is that the when it comes to the monopolistic sort of side? Of, of this whole thing is that how you would explain the fact that there's pretty much not there's probably n- never been a price equilibrium when it comes to the supply and demand of like universities they just keep increasing tuition every year and it just seems like demand if anything demand is just going up and up and supplies just staying where it's at obviously because there's only x amount of universities that could be accredited to be able to issue out these bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and what whatnot is that i mean it seems that's just kind of like i i just wonder what the what's the ceiling like they just they're just going to keep raising tuitions every year and people just pay it <laughs> i mean i think that we're starting to see some cracks around the edges i mean ultimately we do still live in a free market society and we live in a society that values its individual freedoms and people make their own damn decisions about these things. And more and more people are saying, hey, I don't want to send my kids to college or they're questioning college and looking for alternatives. And hopefully those alternatives will spring up over the next couple decades. And if they do, I think that we will see people leave uh, the university system. But today, you're right. They can just keep increasing tuition um, and they're doing it without providing a better product. In fact, the product is basically the same. And it's going growing way faster than inflation. And that's, oh, you got me all worked up. I'm so frustrated by this. <laughs> Gage, before, before we get you worked up, let's just kind of bring you back and then we'll get you worked up again. You know, when you're doing like, it's like a hit workout, right? Like high <laughs> intensity. We're going we're gonna to go up, down, up, down, just to kind of keep the blood, you know, ready to go. Um, but just kind of to take a step back here, um, you know, after college, I saw that you went, you worked at Accenture for a year and then TechCrunch. And then shortly after you started Udemy, right? Is it pronounced Udemy or Udemy? Udemy is uh, fine. Udemy is fine. Cool. Um, what, what was it? I mean, like what gave you the idea of Udemy? I mean, how, how did that come to you? I know you were working at TechCrunch, so I assume you were exposed to stuff, but Accenture, I don't know how much of an impact that might've had. 
So I'm curious to see how that came to be. Yeah, these are overlapping. So I was working at Accenture full-time. I never got paid by TechCrunch. I was just an intern and a writer. Uh, I wrote articles that went on on the homepage and, and were throughout the you know website, but I still wasn't you know a formal full-time employee. Um, but while I was at Accenture, I was just tired of the systems I was in and was looking outside of it. And I started to think, well, I mean, I think people are going to start learning over the internet. So I started a company that was going to teach SAT video education over the internet via video-based courses. And then that idea kind of fell apart. I realized how expensive it was going to be to create the content and that I didn't have any access to capital. So that was going to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine uh, named Deo, who well, he's more like a mentor of mine, was running this program called the Founder Institute. And he introduced me to another set of entrepreneurs in the Founder Institute, Aaron and Octai, who were the co-founders of Udemy. And I met them and they told me about this vision they had for democratizing education. And I was like, sign me up. Can I come and work with you? And we spent the next you know, six months sort of feeling each other out and working together. And then finally, we agreed to become co-founders and they, they let me join the company. And then I brought the idea that I had, the video-based courses idea into Udemy because when Udemy was starting out is actually about live video courses. So they thought people would just come online and we make it easy for anyone to sort of, you know, do a live video class with other people over the internet. And I said, hey, I don't know if this is going to work. Like people aren't really going to go live and they don't want to learn live right now. This is 2009, 2010. And so we eventually agreed to switch to video-based courses, and that's kind of how Udemy was born. And at the time, um, did MOOCs exist? Like the massive, I think, was a massive open online courses? They didn't exist? No, not that we know of. I mean, there were obviously people teaching over the internet. We weren't the first people to sell online courses. But this was not a thing in the way that it became over the next five years. And there was no mm -hmm. term MOOC. I think the term MOOC was probably invented like two or three years after Udemy uh, was started. Uh, yeah. And obviously Udemy, I mean, obviously it's a very successful company, but do you think it was like any part of it was too early or do you think it was like right on time? Well, it was certainly too early because they had been st working on Udemy like three years prior to when I met them. So they had been working on it since like 2017 or 16 or something like that. Sorry, 2007, uh, 2007 or 2006. And then I met them in 2009. And we were just at the right time in some ways because we didn't have the ability to raise a lot of capital. And so we had to grow slow and lean. And I think that if we were even a year or two later, someone with more capability to raise money might have been able to beat us. But we had that three-year head start, essentially. So Udemy was you know, three years in existence before Udacity and Coursera came on the scene. And that's probably one of the reasons why we were able to be successful because we had already started to figure out our business model when mm -hmm. the competitors started to come up. Falcon, I'm curious, when you were at Udemy, um, I, again, I know the timeline now, but when I first remember hearing about online courses, it was like hearing those like infomercial type things on like University of Phoenix Online, right? And you were just like, what, what the hell is this thing? Like, is this a legit form of education was i mean how was that stigma impacting 
you guys when you were doing Udemy? I think it still impacts us to this day. But back then, I think a lot of people felt like it was cheap or below them to teach online and sell their learnings. And so the pool of potential instructors was lower than it should have been. And then the people who were willing to cross those lines and be really aggressive with their marketing didn't want to teach on Udemy because they were making so much more money doing the information marketing thing that you're talking about. Not University of Phoenix, but more like the dating advice and the poker advice and those kinds of things. Right. We tried pretty hard to get those people to come on Udemy, but they just they just didn't see that the revenue opportunity was there. And we thought mm -hmm. courses should be like, you know, ten to fifty dollars and and they were selling their courses for like three thousand dollars. And still to this day there's a huge group of people who sell video based courses for three thousand or five thousand dollars. And I think that's pretty scammy. But Yeah. But that's insane. I think I might have seen it on Twitter or somewhere. Um but um I think I saw you said you got fired from Udemy. I did. Is that what happened? What what like what ultimately how long were you there? What ultimately ended up happening with you and Udemy? I was there for around three years. Um, and you know, I met these two Turkish guys. They were they were incredibly smart and I joined their team. I was the third co founder. And over time as the company grew, I think that my leadership style and Aaron's leadership style and also our view on who should run the company and what responsibilities each of us should have diverged. And I made a few pretty big mistakes in terms of how I was running my team and I was learning from them. And I think it was kind of this moment where Aaron said, hey, I don't really think this is going to work and now's the better time to do this than when we're further along where the company's bigger and you're a more important part of this company and I don't have the opportunity to make this happen. And so one day Aaron just sort of decided, hey, it's, it's time to part ways. And honestly, like I, I really respect him for that decision. I've been in that position now as CEO of Sprague and, and at Maven. I'm not, I'm not like a co-founder, don't have any plans to, but I definitely respect the office of the CEO, if you will. And so, you know, but it was really hard. It was really, really hard to take that. It had become my baby and my identity. And at the time, I mean, I, you know, you're saying it was hard. Like, what was going through your head? Did you know what you're going to do next? Like, were you just kind of confused? What was happening? No idea. I definitely went through like six months to a year of depression, of just, and and it probably honestly started before I left. It started before that because I was just feeling so shitty about how I was as a manager and leader, and and just wasn't. I didn't have the range. Like, I was good with certain sets of people. I had many people at Udemy who I had a great relationship with and we still are friends to this day. I've been to their weddings. And then there were people who I was like too hard on and I, I was really feeling bad about that, but I didn't know how to do that at the time. And so the whole thing was just like, I was just sad and, and felt really debilitated. It took me probably about six to 12 months to sort of get back on my feet and figure out what I really wanted to do next. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a tough time in my life for sure. I guess it's more of a lesson learned experience. I mean, what are the, I mean, what were you doing? You know, what were those mistakes that you talk about that perhaps those listening that are in a similar position now can avoid? Well, very simply, I was too direct with my team about what I thought they were doing well and poorly. So I would tell people like, hey, why'd you write that document? The document doesn't make any sense. And right. I still do that, but now I do it with a little bit more tact than I was doing it before. 
some more finesse. Exactly. And so I honestly like kind of it's it's kind of hard to to look back at this because I think that at the same time, I think, you know, growing up again in an immigrant household where that was kind of normal and all my friends right. were like this. And if you ever go to dinner with my friends from high school, like yeah. we all talk like this. You guys look like you might, you know, have some ethnicity in you. And so I can imagine that y'all are. In- don't, I, don't, I don't look like the whitest guy you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Uh, and the last name definitely gives it away a yeah, little there bit. You. Um, yeah, no, we're both Armenians. Uh, yeah, so I, it's I like, figured, I yeah, figured yeah, you were yeah. you were from that region. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I I think part of this is just like uh, American culture is is very different from Indian culture. And so, I grew up in a right. culture where being direct was totally normal. Like, if I came in to the house and I had, you know, gained weight, like if I'd gone off to college and after a semester I'd come back and gain weight, they'd be like. You look fat. Like, what's going on? My my brother, my brother, who's one of the nicest guys and, and doesn't have this problem of being too direct, really. He would call me Tubby growing up, you know, like or when I was in my my twenties mm-hmm. and had gained some weight. And so, like, this was the culture I grew up in. And so, I just treated all my coworkers like that, and they didn't like it because they aren't used to having people tell them right. things directly, and especially not people in power. And so, right. I learned over time that different people need to be treated very differently in the workplace and to be more thoughtful. And then the other thing I learned is to not get upset at people if they're not doing a good job. Um, Understand that, that it is hard to do a good job and that my standards are sometimes wrong. Like I could just totally be wrong. And then also if I'm right, um, it's just, you know, I, I I get paid to be right. Like I, I, I have the more senior position in the company and I, I should sort of take advantage. I should I should appreciate that, and so I've learned to be a little bit more balanced about feedback. Um, and then finally, honestly, I've just learned to work with people who have thicker skin too. So I just tell anyone who wants to work with me, like, look, if you're the type of person who's really going to like have a lot of issues with direct feedback, this is not the place to be because you won't enjoy right. working with me. Because um, I don't want to change myself. I just soften the edges. Right. You know, and, and yeah, that's funny. a great point. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I mean, it was just, it's more about like the culture, right? Like you weren't a culture fit for Udemy at the, at that time, but because of the lesson that you learned, you now built a company that you can determine the culture yourself based on you and those around you. Cause I mean, both of us, I mean, at least for me, I can speak for myself. I mean, we grew up in very direct households. I'm pretty much the exact same way that you are uh, to this day. I mean, with my teammates, I mean, and it's not in a negative way. It's just I say exactly what I'm thinking because for me, that's transparency. Like I don't want you to assume what I'm thinking. I want yeah. you to know what I'm thinking. I was actually having this conversation with my team today, which is funny that we're talking about this, but like this, you know, kind of the difference between like being very direct with feedback as a leader and like not, not being very direct and kind of being a little bit more. I don't know. Beating around like, the bush. Beating around the bush. Um, and 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 I think that I mean I think it's a two way street, right? Like I think that there's a way to communicate that is like empathetic and to show that you're actually looking out for that person and you're not just attacking them. But then on the other on the other end, like you need to be able to take feedback and know that this person is really trying to help you grow. So I think it has to do with the mindset of people too. And if you don't have this like growth mindset and you're open to to you know getting that feedback and growing, then yeah, you can take it the wrong way. So right. Anyways, um, what did you end up doing to, to get you out of this like deep, dark place that you were after Udemy? I didn't do this intentionally, but I was sort of strapped for cash and concerned that I was going to 
you know, run out of money. And so I, Udemy gave me a very healthy severance. And so I was lucky enough to have time, but uh, the company wasn't super well off. And so I only had a certain amount of, I think they gave me six months. And so I started businesses. I started this little conference called the Growth Hackers Conference. And then I took a consulting job at Lyft. And I think that I got my confidence back by building things that people loved and by working in an environment like Lyft where actually it's an incredibly PC sort of like environment where people were super polite and had great EQ. And I got along with everyone quite well. Um, I mean, obviously I had a different position. I was not in a position of power as a consultant and I was kind of it was a different spot, and I'm sure that there were people at Lyft who thought I was a little bit too aggressive anyways, but but I, I definitely found myself performing well, and I thought that I was doing good work there, and of course, the conference went very well, so I realized, I think that sort of got me out of the funk. I think that's like a common thing, right? Like if you're having, if you're not doing well, the worst thing you can do is just go after the biggest thing you were already going after. Usually the hard problems are the ones that you kind of should just like leave, leave on the table for a little while. So don't, you know, if you just failed at starting a company, don't just go and stubbornly start another company. Um, I think there are times where that makes sense, but for me, it wasn't the right fit. I needed to take time off and sort of get back on my feet and try something smaller. Mm -hmm. And, and what is your, I'm just curious, what is your process? Like, at that time, what was your process for coming up with ideas? Because like, it's not something that just necessarily falls in your lap, right? Like, You almost have to put yourself in situations to learn new things and get inspired by things and see opportunities. I mean, did you have like some sort of process for yourself? It's hard to answer that question because I definitely did not have a conscious process at the time that I was you know, in between Udemy and my next company, Sprig. However, I did have, in retrospect, I can see patterns in how I have approached these situations. And the patterns are, I always tend to spend more time socializing and doing fun, interesting activities. So I, I dialed down the percentage of work. A lot of people, when they're trying to come up with an idea, their ego gets in the way and they're like, oh my God, I'm nothing. I don't have a job. I don't have, I don't have an income. And it freaks them out and they actually work harder. And I think that's actually the wrong approach. You want to relax and chill. And of course, I was stressed and it would bother me, but I pushed through that and just tried my best to go and travel and hang out with friends and play basketball and, and that kind of thing. And then the second thing is I started to immerse myself in industries that were interesting. So of course, I took the job at Lyft. I started a conference, Growth Hackers Conference, and I just generally was like a consumer of a lot of products that I thought were interesting, and I'd spend time delving into them and trying to meet the people who work there. And then when inspiration strikes, it strikes. So you, you just sort of like do these things in the background, and then eventually at some point, ideas come to you. For me, they came to me, I'd say, you know, once every couple of weeks, I'd come up with an idea, and I'd write it down. Eventually, I came up with one that I was excited enough to do next. And actually, that idea was one that came from someone else. So the other thing is, I'm usually very open to. I don't need to come up with the idea. I'm just looking for a good idea. I'm not. I'm not. I don't care where it comes from. Right. And that idea yeah. was Sprig. Correct. And what? So what was Sprig? 
Well, it's, it's a new name. There's a new company now that owns the name, and I'm an investor in it. So we'll call it the food delivery company. I, I need to do a better job of just referring to it without the name now, so we can devoid, divorce the attachment. But uh, my second company was a food delivery company where we were going, where we believed that food delivery was going to be the future. I think we ended up being right about that, and we felt yeah. like the best food delivery was going to be from a centralized kitchen in the middle of your city that was going to deliver you food and give you like healthy everyday meals that you could eat two to three times a week. And so we built this company that essentially involved a, you know, central kitchen where we would make, you know, hundreds, thousands of meals a day. And then people all over San Francisco, we were in San Francisco, Chicago, and Palo Alto. People in, in these cities could go on their app and, open it up and check the menu. Usually we had three to five items on the menu every day and they'd press a button and within 15 to 25 minutes, we'd deliver it to their house and it'd be hot and they could just eat it right away. So it was like a delivery only restaurant uh, with technology. So what happened to it? Well, it, it didn't work out. So we had a great first couple years, the first two and a half years. We grew all the way to $22 million in run rate. So we were the largest restaurant in San Francisco for a short time. And we, you know, had a team, we employed all of our drivers. So we had over a thousand drivers on our, on our team and 300 employees, but 1300 employees total. We had wow. grown this big thing. And then one day, basically one week, we were growing week over week all the way until this point, until February the 22nd, I think it was right after Valentine's day in 2016 and one day all of a sudden our numbers just started to drop and slowly over the next couple weeks and months we were losing customers and we didn't understand why and it turns out that that was the same week that uber eats launched what is the current iteration of uber eats and so i i don't think uber eats is the only reason we died it, it's the proximate cause but not the only cause the truth is we just had never quite figured out the model. And Uber Eats was just, frankly, it was a, a bit of a gift that we had something that forced us to sort of rethink the model. And I think at that point, we tried really hard to pivot a couple times, but we didn't pivot hard enough. And by not pivoting hard enough, we essentially burnt ourselves out. And so for over a year, you know, we shut down markets, we shut down Chicago, in Palo Alto, we shut down hours. We tried to change the menu and find a new uh, business model, but these changes were not big enough and they weren't fast enough. So we spent a year with our business declining, trying to fix it. And by that point, we were so burnt out that the last six months was just us trying to do whatever we could to sell the business. We couldn't sell it. And so then I made what I think was a very tough call to shut it down. You know, something that stands out to me and, 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 and the question you really hear is like what your sort of attachment is to entrepreneurship and how you view entrepreneurship and why you want to be an entrepreneur, because going back to even when you've, you want, you know, got involved with you to me and co-founded it and, and left that and then started another business that ultimately didn't end up working out. Now you're getting a little bit older. I'm sure like pressure is coming on in terms of, you know, trying to I don't know, build something that's going to last and sustainable and maybe financially or just other in other areas you want to, you want to be 
little bit more secure, but you keep going at it. Obviously, we'll talk about Maven, which is your current business, but you're like you kept going at it and and they were almost in like different industries too. Like one was in food delivery, one was in education. It wasn't necessarily tied to one particular path or one particular space. And so I'm just curious, like even just going back now, like to maybe when you're a kid, but like what is your desire? Where does that desire for being an entrepreneur come from for you? I don't think I really have a desire to become an entrepreneur. And I say that because I don't look at the world like, I want to have X identity. Let me go seek it out and make that happen. I looked at the world much more like, I believe in myself and I'm going to invest in myself and I want to be successful at whatever I do. And there are all these problems in the world that seem like they are unsolved. Like you heard my passion for the education system at the first half of this interview. And nobody's solving them or not enough people are solving them. And I feel like I'm capable of solving them. So let me go and try. And so I come at entrepreneurship more from the problem statement side of it. Like, oh, this is a problem I really want to fix than from the, oh, I must be an entrepreneur. And, and I, I think that's important for me because I don't like the pressure of having my identity tied up in my work. I like doing the work because it gives me purpose. And that's mm. very different from it giving me identity. My identity is I'm Gog and Biani. Like I, I'm, I'm totally happy with who I am, irrespective of my work accomplishments. My passion though and one of the things i like to do in my life is i want to build i mean basically i want to disrupt the education system right i want to i want us to view you know 50 years from now i want our kids not to view college as the only option or not to view college in its current instantiation as its only option and Mm -hmm. so that drives me more than pressure about money or title or anything yeah and I'm all about it, right? Like I love, I mean, obviously we, we love the whole, everything about entrepreneurship because we have this podcast and we're like super obsessed with it. But I'm saying like, I'm curious because it seems like there are a lot of people who are entrepreneurs. And by what by that, I mean people that are kind of going off and trying to build something from scratch on their own around a lot of things that are, are really big ideas. Like, I mean, I mean, like education is obviously like a massive space, but just even other areas that you know, um, need disruption. And I just wonder sometimes like if they were to come together, right. And like come together and like start something together, uh, maybe not be as siloed, like would that make more of an impact? And I'm just curious, like, cause there are a lot of people that want to be an entrepreneur just for the sake of being an entrepreneur. And if they see, see another company that's perhaps working to solve, you know, a problem that they also agree with, but they're like hesitant to join that company because of the fact that they want to be the entrepreneur, they want to be the owner of the business. And so what would you say to people like that are in that scenario? I am not, I am in that scenario, but in a different way. (laughs) I am not in the scenario where I think that I have to be in charge and I have to run it because I want to run it or I want to be in charge. I've just realized that this is my natural state. Like I am naturally, I naturally want to live and die by my own decisions. And that level of independence is what you get as an entrepreneur that I'm quite attached to. 
I, at the same time, would love to join a bigger mission if that mission was bigger than the mission I had multiplied by the impact I could have on that mission. So, you know, if I felt like there was another company out there that had a better shot at achieving the goals that we have, I would absolutely be open to joining them. And I think that in many ways I will and do join other entrepreneurs. I mean, one of the things that's great about the entrepreneurial ecosystem is many of us are friends, right? We, we, we talk and we help each other out. And so while we are, you know, on our own separate journeys, uh, we are all connected and supporting each other and often do collaborate in different ways. When we collaborate, I'm sure that at, over my lifetime, I'll collaborate with other entrepreneurs to do things in the nonprofit or the political spheres. And I expect that we will collaborate for the purposes of you know, uh, investing in each other's companies and helping each other succeed from an advice perspective and an intros perspective. And so I do think we are on the same team and we do act that way. Uh, but at the same time, I think we like having some of our own independence, and it's just natural for us to have that independence. And it's hard, it's hard to imagine having the level of impact on another organization if you're not at least intimately involved in its strategy. Right. Talk, yeah. Talking, I know you talked about how you're so passionate about disrupting education and that being a goal, a mission for you, a purpose. Does it ever scare you? Like, do you wake up and say? God damn, like, that is, what the hell am I doing? Like, who, who am I to be disrupting education? It's so funny because I've almost never had that thought. I am scared often by the challenges of the daily grind of entrepreneurship. I often think about problems that might kill our company. You know, Maven's still early. There's lots of risks out there. And uh, so I think about those, but I don't ever really think like, who am I to disrupt this? That thought doesn't cross my mind. And I think the reason probably is because if you just read history or you meet people who are successful at making a big impact, there isn't really this sort of like, I don't idolize these people in that way. I don't think of them as like uniquely special, like people they're just humans and we're all just sort of humans and so i mean who else is going to do this shit like i mean there are obviously lots of other entrepreneurs that i admire who are trying to go after this but there's a lot more people who aren't and so well, why not me right that's kind of right. how i think about it right. I, I love that answer because that is really like mainly the goal of what we what we're trying to do is really like show the human side of a lot of the founders of some of the biggest companies in the world and most successful companies in the world and to show that it, obviously they they built something incredible and they you know but it, they're not always the most talented or smartest or whatever they just had a vision and they just did it they executed right like it, it, sometimes it just it literally just comes down to executing um and not giving up when things get tough and really like sticking it through right yeah i think that i think that that's very true there is a reality that I, if I look at the times, the last decade I've been in entrepreneurship, decade, almost, almost 13 years now, I guess. And I've, almost everybody I've met who was committed and worked hard and sort of just like went after, and you know, went after it 
ended up in a good place in their life. I wouldn't say that all of them were successful though. And so I would say that there is some connection of talent. I wouldn't say it's intelligence, but there is some talent that is required, I think, to be really successful as an entrepreneur. And I don't know what that talent is or what it looks like, but I don't think it's as simple as hard work. And I think certain people are more are better fits to become entrepreneurs than others. But the number of people who are good fits to become entrepreneurs is much wider than we may think. Right. I mean, we've interviewed 200 plus people at this point, and you know, they're all different. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely commonalities, but you wouldn't say like, oh, this person should have been doing this company and that's why they're successful. I mean, they just did it. And along the way, they made mistakes like you made, like all of us have made. They got lucky. They met the right people along the way. They, you know, had the right timing. And then most of them were successful. And that's why they're on the podcast. But switching gears a little bit, well, not really switching gears, but speaking of education and the passion for it, clearly it came back, right? That passion was, it was like a volcano in Hawaii. Like it's just constantly, you know, boiling. And it's just like, when is it going to erupt? And for you, it erupted again. You're just like this volcanic thing with education. And so Maven's born, right? What, what, what was the purpose behind Maven and what are you guys doing? with it? I look at it a bit like unfinished business. I think that we started something with Udemy, right? And, and we weren't the only ones. There were lots of people alongside us who were building companies, trying to reimagine the future of how people are going to learn things and get jobs and move up in their lives and feed their brain. And I just don't think we're done yet. And what we realized, what I realized after, you know, years of reflection and then about a year that I spent sort of like looking at all sorts of business ideas and thinking about becoming an author and I thought about going into politics. I thought about going to Africa and doing conservation. And I realized, A, I, I want to be in business. That's like the area of the world in which I think I'm the most useful. And so I could I would just be pretending if I was in politics or something else, at least right now in my life. And then the second thing that I realized is that I started taking online courses for fun as part of this exploration. And the new form of online courses are amazing. They are so much better than video-based courses. I was like, wow. I was on a call with, uh, on a course with Tucker Max learning how to write a book and it was a memoir that I was going to write and I had to give a speech to a bunch of strangers I'd never met before over Zoom. And I was like crying my eyes out telling this story about my childhood. It's a tough, tough story to tell, but Jesus, I was looking into a computer, right? Like what, <laughs> in what world was that a thing? And I, it turns out that, that you can actually now today in 2021 make meaningful connections solely over video and over the internet. And that is super powerful. And I think that that's the future of learning. Um, and so what I realized was that the next generation of online learning was going to look a lot more like a college class, ironically. It's going to look a lot more like a class you might take at Stanford Business School or uh, a class you might take if you were a professional, you're taking professional development at your university, you know, at, at your, at your um job. So like classes that they do for orientations at Google or something. Right. 
and leadership programs and those kinds of things. And that that is going to be the future of learning. And that those types of courses, uh, I think, are the building blocks to, the, to, the, to disrupting universities. And so we're just starting out. But what Maven does is we enable experts and creators to build cohort-based courses, courses that have a defined start and end date, where a group of people decide to learn something together over the course of three days, one week, five weeks, a year, whatever time frame. And we've been fortunate enough to convince a bunch of creators to teach these courses, and they're going outstandingly well so far. The NPS is yeah. off the charts, so we're pretty excited. You know, something that really excites me about this kind of new wave that you guys are kind of pioneering with education is the ability to take whatever courses you want that think are relevant, that think that you think could add to your skill set that will put you in the best position to succeed at whatever you're doing, right? Because traditionally, I think, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, I think a lot of the value of the, the traditional college degree comes from the companies that are hiring people, right? Like the, the organizations that you're going to end up going and working for, like they would put the value on those degrees, like get, send us your resume for the job. Where did you go to school? That's always not, you know, going to be on your resume. And, and what was your GPA and all, all these things, right? And so I think as soon as the companies, and I think they've started already, like the Googles of the world, um, and I think Amazons or some of the other companies have started to say like the college degree doesn't matter to us as much. And so I think now it's like, well, what, are, what else are they using to evaluate, you know, the likelihood of someone being a success in the role that they're hiring for? And that's, that's kind of beyond me, but, uh, but I think that as, as, as we get to a place where these companies start realizing that the college degree is not the best indicator of the person's ability to be successful, then it kind of opens the doors for this new kind of wave where people can come in really having this solid skill set that's very relevant, but also very kind of deep, it's deep enough for them to actually get started on day one and do really well versus have to like basically learn only on the job because they can't apply anything they learn in college to to whatever they're doing, right? Hundred percent agree. Yeah, and and we're yeah. starting small, right? We're starting in a very particular way. We believe that there are a bunch of creators like you guys who have expertise in subjects that people want to learn, and so we're working with those creators to help them build courses for their audiences. So we've got a course from Sahil Bloom and Julian Shapiro on audience building. We've got a course from Anthony Pompliano on Bitcoin. Uh, we've got courses from Preeti Kasireddy on how to do how to build DeFi applications, and Shivani Berry on Ascend, who helps women leaders become more uh, comfortable with pushing back and and working with dominant personalities. And so we've got all these creators out there who believe that they have something that they want to teach and we're just helping them monetize their audience and deliver value to their audience beyond just sending an email or a Twitter. They actually right. take because time it, to teach yeah. them something. And it's something we've always talked about too is like this theory and practice thing when it comes to the education system where a lot of the professors are people that might not have the experience from a practice standpoint. They're, they're very well you know, studied academics, but they might not, like you had said before, like the, the, the irrelevance also is that they're, they're just career academics, right? They're not people that, like I had an entrepreneurship professor in college that had a PhD in entrepreneurship. 
but he had never started a business before. So it's almost like, well, I, I don't understand how that person could possibly be the best person to be teaching that course for the amount of money I'm paying for it, right? And so in this way, it's almost people that have gone out there, done something great, maybe have a following because of that thing that they've you know, succeeded at, and now are able to share that with pe- with others and 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 teach that and pay it forward, which is incredible. I think that's incredible. My only question though for you is, how do you try? And maybe this is not something that you're focused on, but how does it work? Where we, if if there's a world where let's say a company like Maven is providing the sort of learning right aspect of the educational kind of experience, what about the social experience? How's that gonna How's that gonna work? Because that is obviously a very important part of the system and something that. I took a lot away from is like I met, you know, posh in college. I met a lot of my friends in college. I don't know if I would have been able to have as as a strong of a friendship maybe with them if it was purely online. Maybe not. Well, there are two answers to that. One is that we are in the early days of this, and I think over time there will be lots of innovations that will happen between now and when we actually replace college. We're nowhere close, right? So. Maybe eventually there will be whole apartment buildings that spring up just for self-learners. Maybe there will be co-working spaces that we can get our students' subscriptions to. Maybe we will actually meet at universities and you'll just get your education over the internet, but you'll still hang out in university campuses to see each other and go to the library and things like that. I don't really know yet, but I know that we're going to figure this out. The second answer is you'd be surprised how effective online learning is at getting bringing people together. I just spent two years living in Austin, two and a half actually, and half of my friend circle I met through online education, through online courses. So I happened to take uh, a course from an instructor that I really liked. I DM'd him. We became friends. And then he introduced me to all his friends who are all friends that he met at another course that he was take, that he had taken. And so actually mm-hmm. my, you know, a third of my friend circle or half my friend circle in Austin were people I met through online courses. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows you that you can actually build, I mean, I'm living proof. You can build long-term relationships through online courses. And I think the difference this time around from when you were at Udemy is that there are like really strong communities online. And re- when you really think about the core of the social experience in college, like for example, we said we went to USC, you said you went to UC Berkeley. It's it's kind of like you're 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 tying yourself to some sort of community. Like you belong to the UC Berkeley community. Like we belong to the USC community because we paid X amount of money to go there. And I, I hope we belong to some community there, right? And so and now that we're at a place where there are, you know, for example, the Twitter community or the these like DAOs that are being started are just online communities, the metaverse and all these places, NFTs, people that are buying NFTs. So it's it's almost like that didn't exist before. So it's that could potentially just take that part of the puzzle and own it to just the online communities, right? 100%. To, people today are much more accustomed to making friends over the internet than they ever have before. And it's only going to get easier and more normal to meet someone over the internet and then become friends with them and get to know them either solely digitally or also in person. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Because, I mean, again, for me, it's a little different. I guess it, it really depends on a case-to-case basis and person-to-person. I think that there's definitely a place and time to meet people online first. I mean, online dating is the prime example of that. But at the end of the day, 
you know, you can't really marry. I mean, maybe in the future you'll marry someone digitally. I don't, I don't know anymore. But, you know, I actually, now that I think about it, it's probably going to happen. I just had a quick idea of like an online wedding venue because I just went through it a year ago and I was like, wow, that could really cut, cut the cost significantly. Um, but, you know, eventually you have to have, not you have to have, but I think it's nice to have and it's important to have that face-to-face physical touch. I think that there's still a big value in coming together and just, you know, being in the same place physically, sharing that energy. It's It's, it's something that, it's hard to maybe put a value on or a number on or, you know, a statistic on, but there's a lot that can come out of it. And I do think, Rog and I agree with you that the future will probably be some sort of a hybrid of the two, you know, or, you know, again, whether it's a physical housing slash learning situation or, you know, utilizing these college campuses as the social aspect of it, you know, or the sporting aspect of it, the physical right aspect of it. But I do think that that will come once people adopt the learning aspect of it and realize this is actually better for us education wise and learning wise than the physical part here in a class of 300 getting lectured by some guy who's never ever done any of this stuff. One thing I'm, one thing I'm curious, I guess we could start wrapping up if posh, I don't know if you have any other questions, but um, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, having gone through these two situations where maybe Maybe for you, I don't know if it if you would consider it a failure on your part, but like for you, it just didn't quite work out, and now you're kind of you know third going at it a third time and and really trying to transform the space. Like you mentioned, like with Sprig, um, Uber came in and launched Uber Eats, and that kind of was one of the one of the bigger reasons why uh, things weren't working out. But now you're going against this like massive behemoth like education system in a way, and maybe not like maybe maybe they're not the competition. Maybe it's it, because it, it is maybe a, a totally different type of consumer. I don't know. But how, what have, what are some learnings that you have you have taken from having these like two other experiences where things didn't quite work out? That now you feel like you're in a much better place to to actually hit a home run. Yeah, my. My basic learning from both Udemy and Sprig is that having the right strategy is one of the most important challenges of any early stage startup. And I don't think that you can know whether or not you have the right strategy. And I think that's why startups are so hard. So honestly, I'd like to think that I'm slightly older and wiser and smarter, but I was much smarter at when I started Sprig than I was when I started Udemy and Udemy was a successful one. So who knows, man? I mean, I'm doing my best and trying to figure out if I, I think we have a good strategy. I'm very optimistic. We're seeing good early signs, but who knows? Because really the, the reason I'm asking that question is because I, th- I feel like a lot of people think, oh shit, just because things didn't work out in my early twenties when I started a business, like I'm done. Like my 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 time here is done. I'm just gonna go take a job and work for the rest of my life and whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's. It, I, I feel like there's things that you've you've experienced that maybe it's even hard for you to pinpoint right now. But you've you've gone through it, and even maybe in hindsight, or sorry, maybe like subconsciously, it's there that uh, that when you see it, you kind of can avoid certain pitfalls or certain mistakes or certain things, right? And so I think it's just important to be aware of that, uh, right? I I absolutely think that I've learned a lot over the years and I've gained more resilience and feel more calm and comfortable and I don't freak out about every individual thing or if we have a bad, you know, bad month or something I don't I don't worry about it. 
too much. So I I agree with everything you're saying. I guess my point was just, look, at the end of the day, that's the whole game. The game is a bit random. And I will do my absolute best to give us the best possibility of being successful. And right now, like I said, I'm really optimistic. Um, I think that Maven is well positioned. We don't have uh, a lot of, um, we have a lot of runway ahead of us of opportunity and we're resonating really well with creators. People are having a great time and learning on the platform. So I'm optimistic. And if you're a creator out there listening to this, uh, we teach a cohort-based course on how to build a cohort-based course and it's going on right now and the next one will happen in a few weeks and it's and we'll just keep doing these. And these have been just amazing experiences where we both show people how to, like we show them how to create a course because we're, they're in a course. And then at the same time, we teach them how to create their course so that they can teach what they love uh, to the world. Awesome. Love it. Cohort-based inception. <laughs> Cohort-based course inception. Uh, Gagan, we can't, uh, we can't uh, thank you enough for, for hanging out with us and, and just sharing your story and wisdom with us, but also you know everything kind of you're working on with Maven. It's really exciting. I'm personally a big fan and can't wait to see what happens uh, there, but appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys. This has been really fun. I really appreciate you having me.